From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome to two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. We do it every week. We've been doing it via Zoom for about the last year, coming up on the one-year anniversary of going virtual. One benefit is that we have mostly the whole crew. We have the whole crew most weeks. This is Cade Massey hosting this week along with the everybody, my colleagues at Wharton. I've been doing this with for the last seven years. Eric Bradlow, professor of marketing. Adi Weiner, professor of statistics. Shane Jensen, professor of statistics. Gentlemen, good afternoon to you. Monday afternoon. How are y'all doing today? Doing well. Excellent. How's it going? Good, good, good. Glad to be with you. As always, we've got a two-hour show in front of us. Uh, we're going to save the fourth quarter for interviews, as we've been doing. We have a couple of interviews. We tried to squeeze two in this week. Probably going to run a little bit over on that fourth quarter. Going to start the show, as we usually do, with some COVID-19 conversation. Always interested to hear how you guys are reading the news and thinking about the world we're living in. Um, as optimistic as it is, there are always some causes for concern, so I want to kind of make it sense with it. What has caught your eye in the last week in the world of covid well, I, I think the thing that just caught me is just let's start at the most macro number, which is the good news. Let me say the good news. Um, you know, early on, maybe two months ago, there was about a million vaccinations a day. We're well over two million vaccinations a day now. But if you do the math, let's just say seven times roughly two million is 14 million, which means roughly four percent of the population is getting a vaccination each week. And so the thing I'm very interested in is I'll call it the intersection of two curves because we have this new variant coming in, the B117, which apparently is 59% to 74% more contagious is what I've read. Um, And it's now 30 to 50% of the cases, which is also what I've read. So in some sense, that curve wants things to go upwards. And of course, the vaccination curve wants things to go downwards. And the question, and this is why the people from the CDC, Dr. Fauci, are very concerned because they're like, our baseline level's not low enough. And if you just look at the upward curve, even though vaccination are happening, it may overtake the downward thrust by the vaccination. So it's really, that was mathematically what's interesting to me this week, the upward from the variant and the downward thrust from the vaccine. And I, I want to say that I think we, we've seen those, we've been talking about those dynamics and that, that confluence for weeks now. I would characterize it as the vaccines are going better than we might have thought, but the variants are coming on stronger than we might have thought. So I, I feel like that's the the, the, the how the, the big picture. I, I would agree. Yeah, let me just uh, a couple of things about the variant. So um, and and some data coming from Israel, which has great data. In fact, they have the vaccines because they've they've agreed to publicize all their data and they have it. One is that, you know, Israel has uh, almost completely overrun by the British, the B1, et cetera, um, and its no, no, vaccine. No, be, be, Adi, be more specific than that. You're talking about this variant that, Adi, that Eric just mentioned, the B117, right? That's yeah, it, almost all of Israel's cases have been that particular variant, okay, um, okay. Which, which is the, what that means is that the vaccines, which really weren't tested on that variant, um, have been equally effective in the field as they were in the trial. So that means at least with the in terms of the vaccines that we're using, the Pfizer, the Moderna, I don't know about the J&J, which but their data seems to look good that way as well. The British variant seems to be your vaccines are equally protective. Um, obviously, in our country, so many people don't aren't vaccinated. So that's the concern because it is much more contagious. And you do have these two, two curves going in opposite direction. And we'll have to watch that. I do think we're going to have a, an upsurge of uh, COVID coming. Uh, um, I think that's that's going to happen. 
I do think that uh, we haven't done a good job of vaccinating the most um, the people in our country who are, who are most susceptible, the old, um, in, because of the way we've rolled it out. And that, that gives me pause. I really think that, that we haven't done it right, and it's going to end up costing lives. The other observation I want to make about data just got, just got released yesterday from Israel. People are, are, are misunderstanding. I got to jump on that one. Before you go past yeah. that, I got to jump on that one. I mean, not getting the old is one way of getting it wrong. But how about opening up your state 100 percent? in early March while things are still at a very high level. How about, is that getting it right? Is that going to contribute to more people? Dying? Well, you know, the couple things, I mean, first of all, there's, that doesn't stop individuals from, I think most of the protection comes from individual behavior. And, it, and, and that I actually think that just staying away from public gatherings, get large gatherings at home, large gathering in public, you know, I'm not going to, um, and, and, and so I, I, I'm going to keep my eye on, on, I don't think necessarily say what Texas, and that's not the only state that's opened, you know, Florida has been more, more or less open for the whole time. And I don't think we've seen that much differences. So I think the individual behaviors are far more important than sort of statewide mandates. Okay, that's, uh, that's interesting and, and, and uh, provocative, I would say, because I tend to think of this as having pretty big externalities. And fine, 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 you want to put yourself at danger, that's your right. But if putting yourself at danger increases other people's danger, then we've got an externality. In yeah, indeed. But that's where vaccines come into play. If we if the most susceptible people are vaccinated, that that argument is certainly far less effective. Um, so mm-hmm. but I mean, so we can we can have that. But I want to just give this particular data point about uh, severity. Yeah, and this re- re- actually because people have been missing. Ending something. People are saying that the, the vaccines seem to be 95% per, per, um, effective and, and, and of just getting sick and 99% effective at preventing serious illness. They're not multiplicative. <laughs> that, that, that point is, is not multi. So it's not 0.95 times, uh, I mean, sorry, 0.05 times 0.01. That would be fantastic. It isn't that. So in other words, um, it turns out based on the Israeli data, it looks like your probability of getting the, getting ill is about five percent of what it would be without the vaccine but conditional that you have gotten hill it's not uh one hundredth of what your probability of getting serious ill conditionally it's more like a half okay so that's that's uh that's that's important to keep in mind now i don't know who that people is my guess is probably elderly but that is important to keep in mind okay Okay. Yeah, and I, I kind of want to kind of come back to sort of the like, like not, you know, behavior, like kind of collective behavior and things like mandates and stuff like that. I think one impact they could have, I agree with Audie that it's mostly kind of individual behavior, but there's sort of like kind of collective events that I think do alter individual behavior. Like, I, you know, we did see a very big spike kind of around the holiday season when a lot of people were gathering in, in, in America. And, you know, as I kind of look ahead now to like, I mean, we're entering the what I call, always call St. Patrick's Month here in Philadelphia, because, you know, <laughs> in, in normal non-COVID times, they kind of spread this thing out for several weeks in order to, I think, maximize, you know, profit and stuff like that. And, you know, Pennsylvania is, is, is opening up kind of as we speak as well. And I, I kind of wonder if if things like St. Patrick's, you know, or, or, or some of these kind of like more holiday kind of season events, whether those would end up driving kind of a COVID spike just because they're kind of changing well, a large number of individuals' behavior. Here's the, the impact. If, if you are completely isolating or at least being hyper-conservative, you're, you're, you're ordering all your groceries online, 
you're not exposing yourself unless you're like going to the doctor's office and you're taking multiple protections when you do that. If that's the role you're playing, then you're mostly not affected by these externalities we're talking yeah. about. But if you're having, if you're driving kind of a middle road where I'm going to go to the grocery store, um, I, I, I probably every now and then need to navigate a somewhat closed area. I'm careful, but I'm not perfect. You know, that kind of thing. Now, if it's just more in the community because of the, everything being open, because more people being, um, you know, uh, risky, then that's increasing my risk. Now, yeah. I can dial it back, but it's we've kind of all found a comfortable place or at least. A, a, and I, and I, I just think our sort of average behavior is not the in my mind, I, you know, I'm less concerned about kind of people's average behavior. It's these sort of su- these propensity to create these sort of super spreader type events. I think that like, you know, I, yeah. you know, is it, something we yeah. we it's hard to model that. You know, and I kind of think about things like holiday seasons or St. Patrick's Day as, as potentially creating super spreader events. I just want to yeah. build on Adi's point about, you know, he was saying that given that you get sick, you can't multiply the 0.05 times 0.01. I want to build on that and say, you were, uh, Kate, you were talking about these mask mandates. I think the following things are very correlated. If you're someone that's likely to not wear a mask, you're probably also someone that's likely to take riskier behavior. You're also someone that's more likely not to get the vaccine. And so my concern, I go back to this, you know, we study this in marketing all the time. We call them in marketing, we call them never buyers. You can market all you want. You can drive awareness all you want. You can make the product as good as you want. And there's going to be a large fraction of people that are going to choose not to buy your product no matter what you do. So my concern is that this there's going to be this mass of people. I don't know if it's 20% of the population, 30%, 40%. These people will continue to keep this virus alive. They're not going to wear masks because they're not enforced to have to wear masks. They're not taking, getting a vaccine because you don't have to put a vaccine in your body if you don't, don't want to. And these are people that potentially are more likely to take that middle of the road to the riskier behavior. And so that's my concern yeah. is that they're actually far and you talk about externality they're far lengthening the lifespan of this disease before it got down to a number where we'd get this kind of herd immunity yeah so i i think this is a super interesting concept eric and one that's going to become increasingly relevant as we get more vaccine out uh, and available we've already we're already seeing down here in texas a fair bit of slack in the system where you, you hear about instances that slots are going wanted lots of lots of places are chasing arms at the end of the day um websites even are staying open for multiple days waiting for people to set appointments and if you look at this is a very crude approximation but if you look at the data from the cdc so this is something we've been doing on the show weekly for the last couple of months we're just grabbing today's data from cdc to look at where does the country stand one thing we we haven't done i'm curious if you guys think this is fair they report the total number of such delivered to a state and then the total number of shots administered in the state. And so you can calculate just like of the shots that have arrived in the state, how many have made it into arms. And that's going to be a product of many different forces. I get that. Logistics matter. I mean, even just the density of population matters. I get it. But it's also partly going to be a function of how much demand there is for that. Uh, and, I, I, and, and especially the longer we go out and the more there are vaccines available in the state, the more the demand is what's going to derive is what's going to drive that percentage. Hasn't that number Already, been around 75 percent, 75 to 80 percent or so is what I've seen. I mean, the ratio of vaccines in arms to vaccines delivered. Well, you're right, Eric. At, you're right in the average. But this I mean, this is we're always talking about variants here and variance is what I wanted to go look at. And what do you think that variance is? So give me. 
Give me the top and bottom you'd expect for the percentage of shots delivered into a state that have made it into an arm across the 50 states. What do you think? It I'm going to say it varies between 70% as a low and 85% as a high. I think it's I think it's higher so than it's 68 that. 68 to 94. So it's yeah yeah slightly higher. Yeah, it's higher than because 68 to 94. Because right. uh, because it was much lower earlier because where they had didn't have as many. So now they're now the the slack is a is a smaller fraction of the, the of the total. Uh, but what's interesting to me is how much is going wasted. So what you're describing is this scramble to get him in the arms, and what is uh, I think this big open question is 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 there actual any indication and i know some states are tracking and others are not of actual doses that are being tossed yeah right we don't we don't we don't know that for sure but that you know you can imagine that people who are running these systems are considering volume and if they're not if they're not selling a lot of volume they're not going to schedule a lot of slots but let me just give you a quick sense of i one of the reasons i looked at this was i was curious about this texas thing and texas is really low now on the percentage of the population that has at least one shot. It's down there at the bottom. It's like 14, 15%. And it's one of the lowest two states in the, in the country. And they're, they're, the percentage that they've put into arms of that which has been delivered to the state is like 76. So it's not tragically low, but the low states are Kansas, Alabama, Georgia, Arkansas. And you do wonder whether these never buyers, Eric's never buyers, are going to start affecting this and and it's beginning to it's beginning to matter as I, I, I'd get farther out from that massive like ice storm and all the logistical challenges associated with that before I'd start attributing. You know, I mean those 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 are the parts of the country that are really fair. You know, they they yeah. had to basically take a two week pause in vaccinating people. But I think right? Kay's bringing up an interesting point: is you don't match supply to the population; you match supply to demand. And so if you had an ability to heterogeneous, I'm not saying that I'm just making a suggestion. If you had an ability to estimate demand at the state or county level, you could try to match supply with demand, not supply with population. You might say, look, if this region of the country right now only demands seven, if there's 30 percent never buyers in that region and 10 percent never buyers in that region, I'm going to set the supply to meet 90 percent in that area and 70 percent in that area. You could do that. You can Mm -hmm. absolutely do that. And we have enough data right now, by the way, possibly to forecast the number of never takers or reluctant takers in a given. We region. do. Sure. Uh, I, I think we like do. A pretty difficult forecasting. We do. To me. Well, let me just say, I think the biggest problem that we have not giving it, out random, like a random sample here. No, but there are surveys asking people randomized surveys that ask people what their what their intentions are. Although intentions are always very different. Yeah, than actual, Audie, you, you, yeah, yeah. You're, you're 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 the one espousing surveys. No, no, I think these are randomized designed. I mean, this is obviously these are very hard to do, as we've seen in many instances. But I do think that we can crudely bound the number of people who are never vaccinators. And unfortunately, the the lower and upper the upper bound, I don't know, but that lower bound is unfortunately a lot higher than we'd want it to be. In other words, to translate out into plain English, there's a lot of people out there, too many as a fraction of the population, who are never going to vaccinate. Yep. Now what's going to happen That's- with that and how much we can affect that are the two open questions. Like so I don't know how much is how much is that going to affect the rest of us, those who do vaccinate. I don't know the answer to that. The second question I'd like which I'd love to know the answer is what can we do to lower that percentage? And that's the thing. And can we really lower it in a substantial way? Or we just, I mean, we need a shove, not a nudge to put, to use the terminology, right? <laughs> well, when, um, when you say, when you say too many, 
like i mean obviously i guess like an ideal like zero is is the part we'd like to have but what what what, i'm thinking that that too many is like you know calculate like right now it's too high to you know for most models to sort of suggest that we'll actually achieve herd immunity yeah i would that's exactly where i was that's right if I had to answer it, I would say, what's enough to get us to herd? I, I don't know the answer to that. I don't think anyone really knows the answer to yeah. that. I don't know if, the, if people know what, if the, the never vaccinators are too many to make that impossible. Those are open questions. But I do know that the number of people who aren't vaccinating isn't small. Um, I don't know the consequence of it, but I do know it isn't small. And what I don't know, what I'd love to know the answer is, can we make that smaller? And is there behaviors that we could do to encourage, to somehow design? How can we make that number smaller? And, and that, I think, is the open question that we could potentially yeah. try to answer. Well, let me just comment one thing. So a colleague of, of Cade's, uh, Katie Milkman and, and Angela Duckworth, in their Behavior Change for Good initiative at Wharton, that is the research that they're presenting right now. So they actually ran a field experiment with nudges. They sent various text messages, emails, etc. And so... I just want to say, I haven't read the work, but I know factually that is what the work is about. Yes. Okay. And that's and I actually use the, the analogy when I said we need a shove, not a nudge, because yeah. they, sh- they were able to show that with text messages, they could increase people's vaccination rate for the flu from 23.5% to 25.5%, 2% increase. Yeah. And then when you're dealing with people who were uh, on the day of their appointment, it went from 42% to about 46.5%. So these are small increases. Um, yeah. I think what we need here is not 5 to 10%, not you know, not percentage points, five percent point increase, but bigger increase, doubling of the number. How's this for a shove? We yeah. attach a few. We attach a future stimulus pack. Uh, yeah, that'll do it. There you go. Pay right. People to take it. <laughs> but I don't think we're going to pull that off in this country. But that'll well, no. do it. Well, or, right, but or I mean, I, but I mean, I, 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 I think. I, I don't think we can pull off any shove in this. But let me let, no. But here's a shove. Here's a shove that doesn't involve stimulus. Entry into arenas. Yep. Only on presentation of your CDC vaccination card or some other term. And in fact, I, I got a message saying, don't lose that CDC vaccination card because you might need it for something. Now, obviously, people are probably already lost them, but I would love to see something like that. So if I, I can't go into in, in Israel right now, I got a, a nice conversation with my daughter. She was inside a restaurant. She needed to present her vaccination certificate in order to get in. Uh- Okay, um, with exceptions given for people who aren't allowed to somehow yeah, for yeah. other medical reasons get a vaccine for religious reasons? That doesn't count in Israel, by the way. Well, okay, but in America... <laughs> yes. Would there would, could yes. We get a religious opt-out? It, but I think that, I think that's the, strong, the strongest summary here is that it's really hard. And despite coming from the world of nudges, I think... Those of us who have spent some time on that stuff realize you can make a difference, but they're usually not massive differences oh. unless there's something structural. Like the most successful nudges in the history of nudges are like defaulting people into certain 401k plans. And so this like you just can't default people into going to the hospital to getting a shot for their arm. You can't and, have and an opt out policy. It has to be opt in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, I think that uh, sadly, the probably the most profound opportunity we had was social and leadership. And it was the way this stuff was talked about from the very beginning, because absent identity and culture, you're going to have to rely on incentives. And we just don't have as many incentive levers to push. Um, though I, I agree, Adi, there are, there are going to be, there are going to be events, there are going to be organizations, there are going to be places you can't go at some point, but they're not, I mean, I don't know if that's ever going to be enough to move the needle. 
that much. I want to say one before we leave the CDC data too 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 far away. I, w- I want to say I want to just point out Connecticut again. And looking at them this week, I realized I'm following Connecticut's vaccination rate kind of like you follow, you know, a ten seed in the in March Madness. Like you, you <laughs> find a team and you and you pull for them and you watch them advance. So let me just give you the report on Connecticut. Now re- remember the reason we like Connecticut in some sense is that they they adopted the policy we've been selling for a couple of months now, which is just let's just do age anybody at a certain age and we're going to get everybody and then we'll drop the age limit, you know, little by little as we go through. And we're going to, we're going to blow through all these ridiculously fine criteria and get as many shots in arms as possible. So Connecticut adopted that a few weeks ago and they, I think last week they were fourth or fifth in terms of percentage of the population who have at least one shot. As Adi points out, the ones ahead of them are some of these sparsely populated, not real, not real um, heavily populated states. Well, they're up to third now. They are sitting at 24.8%. They are mere one-tenth of a percent behind Alaska, by the way. So they're about Massive country, massive state, massive. Exactly. In size. (laughs) New Mexico is leading the country at 25.8%, but I'm telling you, Connecticut's gaining. And Mm -hmm. it's going to be just another couple weeks, and our favorite 10 seed is going to be top in the country. But just throw out a data data point I pulled off of the Philadelphia website just before we we got on. 70% of the vaccines in the city of Philadelphia have been to people under 65. Is that because of so many people in hospitals? Yeah, well, that was the that's what I thought was the that's, of course, caused the initial kind of run up. Right. Because they did the health, the the principal health care workers. But now that we're so far in in terms of numbers, we're still we're not catching up. I mean, there's just too many people getting that. Not that it's it's just the system is designed to allow too many people who are under 70, under 65. Hold on. Do, is, are we? The city of Philadelphia is fairly proscribed, is it not? Is it pretty young? Is the city of Philadelphia younger than the outer areas? Or, I'm or sure it, it is sure. to some degree, yeah. I was just going to gonna comment degree. again, Adi, yeah. where you and I live. Let me say it again. 185,000 people in Montgomery County, Pennsylvania, in phase 1A, and they've given 40,000 doses out. So this is still phase 1A. These are people 75 or above, and these are people age or sorry, 65 and above, and people with 16 to 64, but with serious comorbidities. So again, and now the Johnson & Johnson that our county is receiving, which is good. I have no problem with this. It's going 100% to the teachers and the, uh, so that kids can get back in school. So let me just comment. Um, I mean, it's not just there. It's also where I live. I mean, even the over 75, they're now saying it's probably going to be six to 10 weeks before you can make an appointment. And these are people, again, phase 1A. So the, the, this, there's this massive amount of variability across the country now. There just is. So let me just let me give people context for that. Pennsylvania is near, it's kind of in the middle. They're about 32nd in the country in percentage of the population who have received vaccine, at least one shot. They're at 17.9% right there. The country average, I think, is 18.1 right now. So Pennsylvania is kind of representative. Which, now, you're talking about Montgomery County, which may or may not be representative of the state, but you're talking about this is kind of the modal situation out there, which right. is pretty slow progress through the highest priority group. Yeah, the other thing Guys, I was... Uh, but- I was going to say, the other thing that I've noticed, the other thing that caught my eye recently, I don't know, I mean, Adi, you were talking about this for a while, was at one point you were talking about redemsevir, another time you were talking about the monoclonal antibodies. They now actually have something, a pill. So I just heard the other day it came out. So they have a pill now where as long as you take it within five days of your symptoms, it's like a 50% reduction. I forget who's, it might be Merck that's making the pill. 
that you can actually take a pill now. This is not, again, this is not a vaccine. This is a trial, though. This, this is still I, in a trial. I, I understand that, but they're encouraged that there's going to be this pill now that for people that do get ill, this will dramatically reduce the probability of, again, of serious consequences, hospitalization, et cetera. Well, that's exciting, and I missed that news this past week. So how long it's still a trial, so it's, let's not get uh, too, too uh, hopeful because so many things have failed in the, thir- in the third phase three trial. Uh, but that, the, the results do look quite promising from at least the early stages, uh, several hundreds of people. Okay. Okay, great. Well, the, the, I'd say the thing that most caught my eye this past week is on the variants and then within the world of variants, the Brazilian variant, which I think goes by P1. And the news out of uh, Brazil is not good because it's not just, you know, with the others, we've worried about they're more contagious. So things are going to blow up faster. This one, the bigger issue is that they reinfect people who've had it before. So this comes out of a region of Brazil that was hit really hard when the thing first came out. And, you know, the upside of being hit really hard is that you kind of have herd immunity after a while and, and then you're done with it. But these guys have been rocked again by the new variant. And so there's very little of this in the United States right now, very little, like just a handful of cases even identified. But the concern is that if it does take hold, it could really change all the calculus we've been talking about for the past year. Well, I'll just comment that that does sound very threatening and scary, um, but the data is really quite preliminary. So there are people who have been reinfected in Brazil. And there was a thought that some places had so much of the so much of it the first time that they wouldn't get much of a spread the second time. And they did get a spread, but it's it doesn't it's not directly yet connected to people getting getting it twice. And here in the United States, we've had people getting it twice, too. So you got to jump from anecdote to actual survey and uh, and to really know the answer. And that's coming. So, Adi, it, it comes in two different forms. It, for, it comes first from test tubes, right? So they, they do yes. run these up yes. against um, known antibodies and see what navigates what. That's and, right. And we, while recognizing that it's different in the real world. But if I'm not mistaken, I believe they have some, some lab evidence that there is P1 is better at evading um, antibodies, whether it's from having it before or from vaccine than the previous variants have been. What are True. the implications of this? Do we think the implications of this is that, you know, people are saying by early fall, things will be quote unquote back to normal. I assume international travel like that's still not going to be back to normal. And maybe what we'll see is, you know, testing will shift from, you know, I'll call it, you know, uh, people going to school domestically to uh, international flights, etc. Like there, there's going to have to be something that's going to prevent what I'll call these variants from spreading globally, right? Or there's going to have to be something about that. No, there doesn't have to be. I mean, I've, I take it as almost inevitable that if something emerges in one country, it's gonna it's gonna go around. Yeah. But I, I, you're asking the question is so perfect because the main thing I've been thinking about, Eric, since these these this latest report on the P1 in Brazil. It's what you've been saying. It's like the main drum you've been beating the last few weeks is uncertainty, uncertainty, uncertainty. And as optimistic as we're getting, and all four of us are, have been quite optimistic, we, we're not, we don't know. There hmm. are still these unknown parameters, and, 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 and the, the, this is the story again and again and again. That, that left tail is worse than you think it is. 
and whether or not it's worse, it's the probability of something really bad is higher than you think it is because of how much uncertainty there is. Which one do you put have to keep probability on? That, that variant being worse than you thought it was or the probability that they'll find a booster shot that can actually take care of that variant given the mRNA possibilities? Because those, those probabilities could offset in some way. I'm not saying they do, but it's possible. Well, let me just real quickly, and Adi's going to have more on this, but we have to keep in mind that we're running around vaccinating the richest corners of the world, and much of the world is sitting at 3 or 4% vaccination as opposed to the United States, which is at 18%. And the consequence isn't just that, okay, we feel bad, but also that there are vast swaths of the world which incubate these new variants. And until everybody's vaccinated, we're going to be subject to that. And as long as we've got big chunks of the world out there incubating these things, we're still subject to it. And so whether you're out of self-interest or, you know, or, or, or some kind of care for the others, we've got to do something about that. And as long as that's the case, I'm just worried about how how long that's going to be the case. Adi. No, I, I think that this is a, a, a course to endem, endemic um, presence of this virus, meaning that it's not ever going to go away. It's just going to always be here in some m- new f- form. And the hope, of course, is that it, is that it eventually finds its way into a, either it's always readily treatable or it becomes more or less like the annual flu, maybe a little worse, maybe a little bit better. So that this reminds me, Adi, of one immediate implication and an answer to Eric's question is, I think even so within a couple of months, I think almost everybody who wants a vaccine in the United States is going to at least have a shot at it. And many people are looking forward to return to normalcy when that's the case. As long as we have the risk of these other variants and some variant that's good at, 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 at evading these other these antibodies, you're not going to get all the way back to normal. You're not going to be able to go at least without bearing some risk, without a mask, into crowded indoor spaces, without some chance that P1 is there, and bang, you got it again. Yeah, so you're not, yeah, you're not but I'm going as quick as you think you are. Wrong. It all depends on risk appetite. I mean, I'm here. If you take the probabilities of and and. And obviously, you have to rule out the worst outcome of variant, which is much more deadly. But just to say that, if, is is it my general feeling, and just to copy David Leonard, who made has been making this point, you know, rather boldly in the New York Times, is that, frankly, uh, once you're vaccinated, it be, it is it's more, um, I guess, medically becomes like the flu. We don't run so around I, changing I, our life because of the flu. So I I agree with that up to the point that we have. Up to the, now, now, you you've cautioned me on not overreacting to P1 before we actually know all the data, and that's fair. And so that's a huge caveat here. But if some of these variants are coming out as bad as as they sound, then it's not the, the story that David's telling and that we all have been telling and we believe is just not the same story. And this is exactly the point. There's some parameters out there that are different than we thought they were. At least there's a possibility that they're different than they thought were. And that means you, of course, it depends on your risk appetite. But whatever your risk appetite was, the risk is higher than you thought it was, I would say, a month ago. I, well, where I thought Cade was going with this, actually, I thought you were going to take a very interesting conclusion, which was... The As following. opposed to the uninteresting one that I... Well, no, no, no. This, no, no. I was, on this one point you were making about the international nature of it, 
Will there ever be a time where if your goal was to purely save U.S. lives, you'd be better shipping that vaccine internationally and having people internationally vaccinated than having more people domestically vaccinated? And I could see the math from a contagion perspective. That is possible. I thought that's where you were headed, that maybe at some point we could become the global leader of vaccinations. And you could argue just from a purely, you know, derivative of deaths with respect to vaccine, you might be better off by giving it to another country than our own. Uh, Let me just say to respond to Kay, though, I think that it is a possibility. We know that bad events do happen. P1 become whatever. There's got to be some lead time, though, right? I mean, it can't just go from. So in other words, my general view is once you're vaccinated, go back to normal. And if it does turn into a a shit show to if to maybe that's what it was back in, we'll have some time to know how to reverse course, put on our masks, stop going to events until we have another vaccine in our arm that suits the new variant. Yeah, yeah, and again, I think that's, I think, Shane, real quickly, I'm sorry, Shane, we're now both interrupting you, but just real quickly, I don't really disagree with that. But what I what I really heard in, in my head as I read these variant stories the past week was Eric. And Eric says it's what I always say, which is great. So now I'm just hearing a moment, but really I'm hearing from Eric, which is like uncertainty, uncertainty, uncertainty. And I think we got lulled in, you know, late February, early March into some confidence about what exactly was going to happen that is misplaced. Shane, I'm sorry to step on you. Well, no, and, I mean, again, I think it's, you know, with, with regards to things like international travel and stuff like that, I mean, I think it will co- start to become on the individual. I mean, the reason we locked down and, and, and stopped doing it, like actually just, just, you know, didn't allow international travel, all this type of stuff back is, is that this thing was hitting us for the first time. And we wanted to flatten the curve and make sure that our hospitals were not overwhelmed, et cetera. And, you know, mixed success in terms of that. Um, but again, like you, you, it's not just you know, the nightmare scenario where we aren't able to go back to normal isn't just that this, like, new variant, like, you know, somehow is a little bit resistant to the vaccine. It's that it's somehow resistant. It's it's like Corona, the first wave of Corona all over again, Mm -hmm. where we have to, like, and I just, I mean, yes, I guess that's possible that could happen, but I kind of feel like it's not, you know, I think think it's more likely this variant is somewhat vaccine resistant. You know, I, I think the more realistic worst case is we have some variants that are somewhat vaccine resistant that do kind of mean that there's going to be corona kind of circling around kind of like the flu in our population for the foreseeable future but not at the point where we actually have to again completely alter our society in order to flatten curves yeah i i also want to point out one thing is that we have a tendency as humans do in the face of uncertainty to always remember the bad upside, the bad downside, but there's also the other side of uncertainty, which is things are surprisingly good sometimes. Um, so just throw that out there. We've had a couple of superstar successes on the positive side that nobody expected, like the vaccine being readily available this quickly and with so many doses. I think those are, even though we've been slow about getting in people's arms, we have many more than we'd ever thought at an earlier date. And and also, I think there's some other good news on, on, on the, there's been a lot of treatment. Um, I think death rates have gone down way lower. I remember a conversation I had with my colleagues about what do we think the overall uh, infection fatality rate will be after the end of the day. And, and his, his, his guess was around 0.8, 0.9%. And it looks like it's about a third of that. And finally, there's some new, new results on, on uh, long-term effects, particularly young, young people that seem to be pretty minimal. So there's some okay, good news. A, it's, it's a very it's a very fair point, and if you listeners could have only seen the sparkle in Adi's eyes and the smile on his face, joy, <laughs> happy happy Adi is a, is a, is a good thing. We need a little happiness there at the end of the first quarter. 
All right, guys, that has been the first quarter of Wharton Moneyball. Jolly Adi, I think Jolly Adi. <laughs> you still have. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. We do this every week. You can participate if you'd like. You can drop us a note. Hit us up on Twitter is one way to do it. At WMoneyBall is our handle up there, at WMoneyBall. You can also send us an email. We have a mailbag. We pick those up periodically. We love hearing from you. We love doing segments on the show that take up your questions. The email address is moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. Again, moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. Reach out. We'd love to hear from you. We got the whole crew here just out of the COVID segment rolling into the second quarter. Open lines. We used to say open topics. Guys, the most fun topic I've come across in a little while um, is the, the overtime proposal, the new overtime proposal that the Ravens are putting out there. So the NFL has this neat um, way of doing things with rules. Teams can sub- submit proposals for rules changes. And they'll consider them, and they adopt them periodically. And, of course, people have been frustrated with overtime for some time in the NFL. The idea, the concern is that the coin flip makes too big a difference. The team that gets the ball first, and they keep on modifying the scoring rules. If you just used to, you get the, field, you get the, you get the kickoff in overtime, you go 30 yards, you kick a field goal, you win the game. They did away with that. You can't win with a first-drive field goal. But there still is a big – empirically, it's a, it's a, it's, it's a disproportionate advantage – off of a coin flip. So what have the Ravens done? They're proposing super interesting idea. They're proposing that one, the, the divide and choose process, basically. It's just like you do with the kids. You know, you got a, you got a piece of cake or a cookie. You let one divide, you let the other, the other one choose. So the first person who divides has incentive to be fair because he's not going to get to choose. So how does that work for the OT? Well, one team would say, we propose that the team with the ball gets the ball on the X yard line. And then the other team gets to decide whether they want the ball or they want the other team to have the ball. You want to start on offense or you want to start on defense. So you have to propose what you consider to be a fair place on the field before knowing whether you're going to play offense or defense. So super interesting analytically. And it's perhaps not uh, surprising that it came from the Ravens who are known as one of the more analytically sophisticated shops out there. And, you know, Analytics in the NFL comes in multiple varieties. One is get a game decision-making, more with the coaching staff. And the other is personnel evaluation, more with the GM. Ravens have strengths on both sides of the house. They have folks, they have full-time analysts on the coaching staff side and full-time analysts on the personnel side. This, I, I assume, comes more out of the coaching staff side of things. So what are your reactions to that? What do you think? Adi's trying to jump in here. Adi. I'm, I'm going to ask a question because, I, I mean, it sounds great. Like, I love these, the, you know, one, one size picks the other chooses. Of course, think about the cake example. That's only effective if you can genuinely choose accurately. Otherwise, you absolutely want to be the picker, right? In fact, you always want to be the picker because um, if at least you have a hope of getting the, the unfair slice because if someone makes a bad, they can try as hard as they can, but they can still make an error. If you take it to football, what if what kinds of teams out there could make this highly highly unfair? In the sense that that the the team that starts uh, or, or one team has an advantage, um, is it? Be, do you have to have an imbalance in offense and defense? If you have a, a team that's a very good offense but a terrible defense, is is going to be disadvantaged by the system? And what what could go wrong? 
Well, that's basically what I'm asking. I think it's a great question. But before we do that, let's just say setting aside strategy, setting aside whether it privileges some teams or another, the biggest selling point in my mind is that it takes a coin flip out of it. And now it is a it is it is a decision that each team makes. Each team has a decision to make, and that is what determines who gets the ball and where. But who goes coin. first? Who it, it technically doesn't take the coin flip out of it because a coin flip decides which team is doing the picking of the yardage versus the picking. That's right. But but here's a here's a bet. If this is ever adapted, there will be no empirical advantage over the long term to who gets the coin flip because, as Adi says. Uh, real the real advantage is to being the picker unless you can really use the chooser unless you can use the person who decides the yard line super strategically and I think fewer teams are going to be geared up to do that. Yeah, um, I mean, that, my, I my, first, that, my my first impression upon hearing this is like again, I guess taking kind of like sort of imbalances between offensive and defensive skill kind of and strategy out of it. Like, are are the the team assigned the yardage? I mean. It, what, what what would ever be kind of uh, an advantage to doing anything but I guess the fifty yard line, right? Oh, because sure. I would never I, I I would never pick the so no one's going to take no one's going to say the fifty. No, if I say the it's going to be like the twenty five. Yeah, or which is essentially where it is now because of the kickoff. But if you say the fifty, Shane, here's the problem: what you want to prevent if the other team has the ball is the thing that ends the game. So assuming they're not going to change the rule, which means the other team can drive down for a touchdown and win the game, if you pick the fifty, the other team's going to say, "Give me the ball." Because you know, they, they fifty sure, yards, 100%. the game's over. Even if they, yeah, don't. I guess I wasn't thinking about this. This is going to be asymmetric in the sense that you're not, you're not picking, you're picking the yard. They can't like if you say the twenty five yard line, it's your yeah. twenty five. Yes, line. right. Yes, you're yes. picking a specific oh, I side. I see. Yeah. I see. Okay. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, I was, I was trying to get. I was trying to do exactly though this intuition, Kate. I don't have great intuition about whether it would be teams would pick like here. The first intuition came to my mind is. I'm going to pick my own one-yard line. Now, why do I do that? Well, one thing – this is – I'm not sure it's right, but one thing is if they say, well, you can have the ball at the one-yard line, okay, well, I did get the ball first. That's what I was hoping to do anyway because I can drive down the field and score. Okay. And so that was so my hope. My it. intuition is it'll move it between the 25 where it essentially currently is and the goal line. No, That's, so, no, so no, if no. I think about it, no, so I'm looking at the, the, the famous chart in the, in the Romer paper that, that figured out the, the fourth down uh, chart. And it, that, that shows that it's zero EP expected points at about 20, 25 yard line. So that's, yeah, exactly. if you think about it in terms of expected points, that would be the choice. Now, there could be a very big d- nope. advantage if you're a very good defense. I totally team. disagree. You're not trying to maximize expected points. No, you're not maximizing. You want to make it zero. You want to make it indifferent to the no, choice of the team that no, follows. No, nope. no, it's expected. It's win probability. It's okay, win yes. Probability. Right, of course it is. Of course it, it is win probability. But I don't know what that is because I don't know the, that data. So I'm but, using a surrogate, which is the expected and points. And I don't agree with that yeah, surrogate. It's going to be a real good surrogate, though. It's not going to be perfect, but it is going to be. Well, perfect. except there's this weird ordering, right? Because, like, you basically can win the game with a, pos- a field goal on the second possession, at least if they keep that kind of current rule around. That's right. And so, like, taking it on your own one, I mean, the other team would be like, yeah, sure, take your possession on the one. We'll stop you, and we'll basically be in field goal range to win the game. 
Yeah, right. yeah. So I, I just said my intuition is it's going to be though it's between one. twenty-five and the zero. It's not going to be at the one. I agree with that, but it's going to be something where it has to be, in my view. And I don't think expected points is actually a very good proxy here. I think it has to be inside between the twenty-five and the goal line. I think it's going to be inside the twenty-five and the 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 eighteen, somewhere in that range. Yeah, I have a narrow. I have a much narrower range. In fact, just thinking about it a little bit, I I, I kind of got to thinking. Look the. It's not going to be that consequential in the end. I doubt many teams propose much very different from 20 to 27, 19 to 27. And mm-hmm. so you're going to say, I think you'll see a pretty tight range. But, but I think the interesting bits are how big does it swing? You know, if you're a really strong offensive team and a weak defensive team, then you're going to propose a pretty ball pretty deep. Because if you don't have it, you want to have them far away. And you, if you do have it, you're willing to, you're willing exactly. to be far away. And flip it around. If you have a very strong defensive team and a weak offensive team, you're going to propose it being much further out from the goal line. And so you will see some swing, swings like that. But then what weather is interesting? Uh, what it, what, how does it change if you've got, one, if you've got strong winds? And you've, you've got to have some way of, de- of determining who's going to be on what side of the field. But that could really push things around. And um, what if, I don't know what if, I, there there's some in-game considerations that I think will complicate bits, and you know the NFL doesn't allow computers during games, and so you're going to have to have all this laid all the permutations you think you might ever run into laid out on a piece of paper beforehand if you really want to navigate. Well, let me just just quickly just one last thing. If I were just trying to build intuition here, if I pick the 25 yard line, okay, then essentially I'm giving the other team. The ball, which is the current situation now. They have the right to say, give me the ball. So we know factually that team can be no worse off than they were under the old rules. And a matter of fact, in some sense, they've won the coin flip by you picking the 25-yard line. That's that's great, Eric. That's great. That's very helpful to us. And and we know that's empirically advantageous. Correct. And so we can... So 20? Well, so hold on. Let's acknowledge we're talking about the league average right now. And there's going to be some variation that puts it around. But I love that. Logic, and I love that as a starting place. Okay, Eric. So, can, can you can you build intuition beyond that? Because that's a great that's great that's great intuition. Well, what I what I need to understand is, as opposed to the expected points. And by the way, this is a thing we study a lot in marketing, which is I'm not interested in your customer lifetime value, which is your expected purchasing in the future. I'm interested in your probability of being greater than zero. So that's yes. the probability I have to look at here. What's the probability I score anything? And so, to me, my intuition. So, well, depending on the, depending on the, depending. Yeah, on I the mean, game. again, are we are we operating under the assumption that the current kind of scoring rules for yes, how wins? I'm under that assumption. That yeah, I'm under the assumption that the scoring rule is if you score a touchdown on the first possession, however you got the ball, whether you, yeah. you know that you score a touchdown, the game's over, and that if but also, and then after that, any other score wins. Right. Field so goal I, doesn't. Right. So, I mean, like, not a field goal. You, you could imagine like a, a team with a very strong defense and a very weak offense might actually want to defer essentially the first possession. Right. Because then they can stop. You know, you stop a team. That's right. And then all so you need you is a field the, goal to win instead of a touchdown. You bait the team. You bait the other team into yeah. taking it. So you say give the 30, give them the 30 yard line to bait the other team into taking it. It's like that's lovely. That is just absolutely lovely. It's a whole new element. Well, let me ask so, you, Eric, there's a good reason why last, you see something one last outside. Question the, of, well, hold on. But the Shane's point is, yeah. Eric, that, Shane's point is that's one reason you would see it outside of 25, even though we know 25 is advantageous on average if you've well, got these circumstances. Let me just ask you a separate DVD. question, and I don't know the answer to this. Under the current rules, can I decline the coin flip in overtime? 
Like what? if the it's other right. team gets the ball. Choose? Yeah. Do I get to choose? You probably get, you could choose a fee, side of the field. That's the way it usually yeah. goes. Yeah. You can no, no, I'm just saying if I win the coin flip and I'm a great defensive team, can I say I'll let the other team have the yeah. ball? Yeah. You choose to In kick. overtime. Yeah, you, yeah could you could choose to kick. You yeah. could, but you, you would probably choose the side of the field because if you choose to kick, then the other team gets the ball and gets to choose right. the side of the field. Okay. Yeah. Very interesting um, discussion. I, lo- I love yeah. the topic. By the way, the, uh, another proposal that the Ravens made was to put another official in the booth with access to all the cameras and the ability to overrule any call. And so it's just it's super interesting way of navigating some of these things. And they've got all kinds of any call and any lack of a call. Like can like like penalties that weren't called can I I believe it's supposed to be kind of an omniscient thing. Now they're gonna now look, I haven't read this one in detail, so I I I don't want to belabor the point here, but they did put this other proposal in and it's intended to get at I love it because I it feels ridiculous that we have these can and can't overrule parts of, of officiating and is there some way that you the trick is can you do it without changing the game too much without interfering and all of that and so that's the stuff tough stuff to to navigate but they've got two the, the ravens have two yeah. proposals in there no and i, I mean i only i only react to the kind of the, the 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 like sort of non like if they could actually sort of insert extra penalties in that hadn't you know because there's already the one of the dissatisfying things about football is you see some amazing play and then yeah. you got to pause your excitement for like yeah. two seconds until yeah. there's an indication whether there's a flag on the field and now we got to wait another 10 seconds to see if the sky no, judge saw right. anything so like, yeah. i mean you would hope you would hope so because what's the what's the worst call in the last two seasons or last three that non-interference call against the, that the, that went against the Saints in Agreed. the NFC Championship game. Yeah. That was the most egregious thing any of us have seen in a while. And you, if you don't fix that, if you're going to say you're going to fix a fish, no, that's you don't right. Fix that, then, and and then for egregious things like that, it. I just you know again, I kind of like you know the, the, there is holding on like every play that could potentially be called. Oh, God. and so well, yeah, like you, you know, kill the, you could kill the game. Yeah, so, so right. this is this is the concern that I have is that there's essentially a lot of rule bending that's part of the game, and then you also don't want to slow the game down where where every time there's a play there's a wait. That would just that's, make it insufferable. Those are both fair. Those are both fair points, which we're immediately discounting because Adi raised them, and he's the he's the hidebound conservative among us. So he's just well, only in baseball. I, I'd, I'd love to see changes in every other sport. <laughs> so, guys, one one uh, other interesting bit that came out of the NFL was this note that Eric put up there about Ky- Kuiper, Mill Kuiper's best ever top 10 rated quarterback. So Eric, I don't even know what it is, but let me give you the list and you listeners can decide what is Kuiper talking about here? Get this, get this list. It's crazy. Elway, Luck, Manning, Lawrence, Kelly, Ware, Bledsoe, Leaf, Aikman, Josh Allen. What is this list? Well, this list is when he rated them when they came out into the NFL. So he's saying, what are the top five scoring grades he gave of quarterbacks entering the NFL draft at the time of their draft? Mm -hmm. And so his comment was, Elway is the best he's ever seen. And then his comment is that Trevor Lawrence, and by the way, this is Peyton Manning, not Eli Manning. Um, His comment is that Trevor Lawrence is the fourth best quarterback, according to his Mm -hmm. rating system, that he's ever seen enter the NFL draft. Now, I will say... Mm -hmm. um, Ware was not a particularly good NFL quarterback. Uh, Leaf was not a particularly good NFL quarterback. I actually read some interesting data when we just saw the data on uh, Ryan Fitzpatrick uh, might retire. I'm going to say something that might be heretical to you Dallas fans. 
Troy Aikman was actually not that great a quarterback. If you look at the career stats, the completion percentage, <laughs> etc., of Troy Aikman, actually Ryan Fitzpatrick on every measure has better statistics than Troy Aikman. I mean, that's, that's a, I mean, the game's changed a lot. <laughs> he also you had know. he also had Emmett Smith, the greatest running back of yeah, all no, time. Yeah, no, right. And yeah. he also had uh, Michael Irvin as well, and the greatest offensive line of all time. All I'm commenting on is he's not a hundred percent accurate. That's all I'm all saying. Right. Can, can I just give give some uh, some commentary here? It sounds like about eight of the ten, or eight of the ten, are excellent superstars. I mean, real superstars. No, no less. No. So what I'm trying to say, what, am, what, am, what am I supposed to think about Trevor Lawrence? If he's giving him the fourth highest rating, and generally when he gives very high ratings, they tend to be very good, but not always. I mean, anymore. I mean that's what I'm asking. Eight out of the ten are successful franchise quarterbacks. Okay, so I should be quite confident if this is a uncherry picked, and it probably is. Um, then Tre- Trevor Lawrence has a really strong chance to be a franchise quarterback yeah I, th- I think that's fair i think he's got uh, look I, I trust him to have just given us a comprehensive review of his evaluations and i think he's got just enough failures to make it credible because mm-hmm. this is the nfl draft and what the main thing he's saying is lawrence is in super exclusive country company in our adult lifetimes uh uh manning and luck were the were the guys who were like 100% can't lose prospects, and he's putting them right there in that camp. But he is simultaneously saying, look, man, this is a crapshoot. I had Drew Bledsoe there. I had Andre Ware there. Andre Ware was a phenomenal college quarterback. Great he was player. not a professional quarterback. All right, guys, we have to wrap on the second quarter. Good stuff. This is the fun of the NFL draft. We'll come back um, after the break. You guys come back and join us. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics on SiriusXM coming to you every week via Zoom for the last year. Coming right up on that one-year anniversary, fellas, of going virtual. Got the whole team in here. Eric, Adi, Shane, this is Cade. Have a short third quarter before we roll into our fourth, fourth quarter. Double interview. Short, but double interview in the fourth quarter. I think you guys will enjoy it. Talking a little bit of sports science, talking a little bit of basketball. Guys, uh, we're coming up on baseball. I know these magical words you love to hear. They must have already been said. Pitchers and catchers? Pitchers and catchers? Or are they out there? That's well, happened, right? Spring tra- I've been watching spring oh, yeah. training. Yep, they've been, they've been playing. Yeah. Okay, they've been playing. I see scores. It comes up on my phone. I know. That. I know. I knew that. So I've heard a note from one of you guys at Otani, this unicorn of a player we heard about a couple of years who's extraordinary, both pitching and batting. That doesn't happen a whole lot at the major league level. Then he got hurt. Then he was only going to do one. And I'm, you're here, I'm hearing that he's doing both. He's been spotted doing both. What's the story here? He's doing both, and he's doing both well to start with. He's been dominant as a starter, and he's hit some bombs, which everybody loves, over the batter's eye, which is about as far as you can basically hit it. Um, what is it? What is the batter's it? eye is, the, is that dark section um, in the center field region that prevents the batter from being distracted. So every every stadium has that. And uh, to hit it over the batter's eye, <laughs> you're hitting it about 450 feet typically, um, which is a, a prodigious display of power. But I always, you know, Otani, great. It's terrific. I wish he were playing the National League. I think they'd get more value out of him there than he would in the American League because he'd be a pitcher who would hit. And he could like be one a- more season yeah right universal dh right then then it'll be then it'll be the same right so uh obviously a lot to watch because it's really hard to be damn good at two things 
Yeah, and I assume other- the nice thing about him, them, him be, being with the DH is there's a greater chance they'll actually kind of stick with him as both a pitcher and a hitter. If he actually was had to like hit and play the field at a position and pitch every fifth day, I think it would be even less likely that they'd kind of continue this experiment. I'm a little bit skeptical they're going to – I kind of feel like they're letting him pitch and hit now, but they're probably going to bail out of one of those the second he, there's any kind of hiccup basically with him. But – I, I don't know which way the causal direction is, but just quickly, they're going with a six-man rotation. Now, I don't know if that's to save him and preserve him and allow him right. to do both because they think he's so capable of both. But last thing I read just a couple of days ago, it's a six-man rotation. Okay, got it. Um, closer, closer to regular season, we're at the midway point or presumably you know, more or less at the midway point with the All-Star Game and basketball. Did anybody take in any of the All-Star Game weekend festivities? There's the game. There's the slam dunk contest. There's the three-point contest. I, I watched the um, three-point contest, also the slam dunk contest, and I watched a, a fair amount of the game. So let me just start with the most exciting one, which was the three-point contest. So um, uh, Mike Conley had 27 points already. It was Steph Curry against Mike Conley in the finals. Uh, Mike Conley had a tremendous final round, 27 points. And here was the shocking part. No shocking part, if you know Steph Curry. He basically had to hit his last three shots to win, and he hit him. And as a matter of fact, they were so cleanly through the net that it was shocking. And, you know, th- th- it was just the amount of pressure and he knew and by the way not only did he know but you could see from his angle he's staring right at a clock which is ticking yeah. down when he released the last shot he only had one second left so not only is he staring at Mike Conley's score and his score and he's a smart man he can do math he's literally staring at a running clock while he's trying to shoot the ball I, I just yeah. thought this was it was an incredible display and just I, I just don't know anybody else that can shoot the way he shoots it's, a, it's remarkable well, you know, frankly, one of the bigger stories there is that Conley pushed him that far. That that guy's the best in the world and has been you know, best ever at what he's doing. And Conley pushed him that far. It's quite an accomplishment itself. Um, on on the, do you have much concern about Embiid and Simmons missing the All Star game? The COVID is still kind of. Was that a legit thing? This is more barber barber. Well, spread the, contagion. Well, the issue I just have is we t- we've been you know you told in the first quarter of the show you said I've been harping on uncertainty. So you know right now they're lucky in the sense that it's the All Star break, so those seven days can be counted. But let's say it wasn't the All Star break, and they went to their barber, they test positive, they have to quarantine. I forget I don't know what the NBA protocol is now. If it's seven days, ten days, but let's say they miss five, six, seven games, and with their lead right now in the East, if if Simmons and Embiid don't play. They could drop from the one seed to the five seed, which all of a sudden has a huge potential impact. So you you talk about um, uncertainty. We have to continue adding COVID as a tremendous uncertainty for the NFL, for the NBA this year. Can I just ask a simple question? Why can't they cut their own hair? I mean, this is silly. I mean, to take a risk like that, not not about getting, you know, the health risk, just losing days like that. I mean, it just seems that these players should be do should be not not taking risks like this for the for the good of the team. I'm, I mean, it was really the idea that the, you're seeing a, a public barber. Wow. Well, I'm not going to hold it against them that they're letting someone else cut their hair, but it's shocking to me that somebody whose job it is to cut yeah. their hair can't keep himself or herself 
COVID clean. Guys, what about DeChambeau? Where do you sit on DeChambeau? I'm still pulling against him. I know lots of people in my life. He comes up on the screen, and he's like the villain. It's almost fun that golf Just has because a of, he's kind of like the, a one-dimensional sort of player? Is that No, like, he's not. If you had watched the tournament that player. I watched, which I did, just the Arnold Palmer Classic, this uh, tournament this weekend, the number of uh, sand saves he made – his putting was phenomenal. His touch around the greens is phenomenal. Um, the thing that was shocking was there's this hole that, if, if you know, obviously we're on the radio or podcast here. It's shaped like the number seven. So the only thing is DeChambeau is the only one that – and there's a big pile of water in the middle of the number seven. Now, DeChambeau is the only one that can actually shoot. It's a 570-yard hole if you have to follow the number seven. But if you don't, it's only 390 yards. So he actually went for the green. So in a par five. (laughs) And now he hit it 370. He got it to a bunker around 330 yards from the green, chipped it on. Now he's on in two in a par five. But, I mean, he's on from a a wedge shot from the sand. And so to me, this was remarkable that he was able to do this over and over again. And he's trying to drive par fours. If there's a 400 yard par four, that's downwind, he's going to try to drive it. And, you know, at the end of the day, he not shockingly, uh, Shane, he's number one in strokes gained off the tee by a large margin. And that Mm -hmm. has to give him, you know, I hate to say it, but if other guys are playing par 72, he might be playing par 70. You know, Cade, you raised the question, why is it that he's uh, the guy everybody loves to hate? Is it because of conservatism, the idea that that this is just – he's breaking the tradition? I mean, the way you describe it, if it's a seven and he's going across the hypotenuse, that doesn't feel feel fair, even though it is, of course, legal and and it's – and my second – potential uh, solution to it. Is it because of this, you know, extraordinary gain of power? Um, Not that that people think he did it, you know, illegally, but just using modern tools of weight training and that this doesn't feel satisfactory. If you were an 18 year old, 17 year old, 18 year old with incredible power, people would love it. But because he just transformed himself, it it feels like it's somehow different. What are your thoughts? I don't Yeah. So, so I, I think both of those play in my, uh, I had a family member who compared him to Kepka and said, you know, Kepka is kind of a, a kind of a strong big hitter too, but he, he looks he just looks more natural. Like DeChambeau, this is just visceral, no this is just wrong in many ways. But he did he does look like a different creature out there because of how much weight he put on and the way he put it on. And there is something for some people that might be exciting. For some people it's like just a little too much. For, for, I admit to just being this is just bias and it's the, his swing is different. It feels, you know, in just, like very technical, and even from the time he came out of college, he's he's been this super technical approach. All of and his clubs a, are exactly the same length, except for the driver. So he's he's unusual in this way. And if you, there's a there is a strand of purism in golf that goes back to like Ben Hogan and the pure swing, and there's the elegance about it. And he kind of runs against that. I'm not proud of it. In fact, I'm kind of a little embarrassed about it. But I got it. I got that strain, and I know a lot of other people. But let's forget too. the distance on the driver. Let me just say the hole that convinced me he's got a massive advantage. There was a 210-yard hole, par three, into the wind. So you're hitting into the wind. And his playing partner, Lee, Wood, what, Lee Westwood, no potzer, former number one player in the world, hit a five iron into the green. Uh, Bryson DeChambeau hit an eight iron, 210 yards into the wind. Now, he's mm-hmm. hitting eight iron. 
the other guy's hitting five <laughs> iron. I'm no expert, but that's a massive difference, yeah. a, a lofted club versus not, and your ability to stop the ball on the green. He's doing that on every hole now. He's hitting two slash three clubs less than every other player. That's got to – it's just got to add up over 72 holes. It has to. So, by the way, on, on that point, and this is slightly changing, but same within golf, K- Kala Murakawa is uh, a young player who won a major in the last couple of years, won the PG, won the PGA, Eric, or was it another – which major? Did he win? Yeah, he won the PGA, and he also just he won, won a World a WGC event last week. Okay, so, and he's a little guy. He One of the pleasures of watching him, he's just pounding the ball. He's a little guy. But let me give you a quick trivia question. Apparently, the average – he's a, he's like a playing editor for Golf Digest, and they did this little segment. And they, they ask – people say that he hits his mid-irons as close as a lot of players hit their short irons. So the average – I think – the average, I think, the average pitching wedge is with twenty-three feet or something. I would have thought it was closer than that, but say the average pitching wedge is twenty-three feet. They said, "Can Marikawa do that with a six iron?" So they went out and filmed this little segment. It's fun. You can look at it at Golf, Golf Digest. They gave him twelve balls. They put him at a six iron distance and asked how many he could put inside twenty-three feet. Trivia question for you guys: How many of those twelve balls do you think he put inside twenty-three feet with a six iron? Colin Marikawa on the range. Eight. I would have said like five or something like that. I don't know what on earth you guys are talking about. How's that for an answer? (laughs) Is 12 good? Is 12 good? It was pretty good. Yeah. (laughs) It was unbelievable. It's so much fun to watch him do this. And it's just, I mean, talk about things that would be different if we went. I I think what you're talking about, Kate, is look, at the end of the day, Colin Morikawa doesn't shoot five strokes worse around than Bryson DeChambeau. Therefore, for them to be able to both compete, their different stroke difference might be 0.2. Then he's got to be better at something. And he must. Mm -hmm. And so in his case, he's focused on what he can be better at. He can be better at the mid mid iron game. That's a great idea. I like it. Well, it's nice to see the contrast because he's playing a different game than DeChambeau is, and he is competing at the highest level. And that is one of the nice things about golf is you see guys come in and play it different ways. There is some concern that DeChambeau has such an advantage in the way he's come up with. Now, he created it. Give him credit for creating it. But there's some concern that he takes that away. And now some guys uh, you can't have no shot. Yep, that's the argument. All right, fellas, that's been three quarters of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a quarter to go. Come back and join us. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. We do it every week, rolling into the fourth quarter now. This is our interview segment, has been for the last year anyway. We're going to do two interviews. Do you like interviews in the fourth quarter? How about two interviews in the fourth quarter this time? Herman Ponser is going to join us, come back to the show, actually. We had him in the last two couple of years, about a year and a half or so ago, talking about human physiology. And then second half, we'll talk a little basketball with Nick Elam. Herman, good to see you. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Hope you're oh, well down there. Always great to be here. Appreciate it. Um, I'm assuming you're calling in from North Carolina, but in the time of COVID, I can't assume too strongly. Where are you calling in from today? I'm calling from beautiful Chapel Hill, North Carolina. All right, Chapel Hill. So Herman is over there. He's professoring. He is the associate professor of evolutionary anthropology at Duke. He's also affiliated with the global health with the Duke Global Health Institute. We talked to him after his article came out a couple of years ago on the limits of human endurance. Herman and his team figured out kind of the the absolute most you can burn over a long period of time 
um, these kind of multi-day marathon races. And, and, and interestingly, one of the nice anecdotes there was this bit about pregnancy, that women over this nine-month time of being pregnant are kind of pushing there at the outer limit of human endurance. And you're back, and you're back in the popular attention because you've got a new book out. Let's talk about it real quickly. I want to tell people what it is. It's called Burn. New research blows the lid off how we really burn calories, lose weight, and stay healthy. So, Herman, we're dying to hear from you because you know how it is reading the newspapers on sports science and Mm -hmm. exercise science. I mean, everyone's got a new story every week, and we're not sure what to believe. And so you, we've got some confidence in. We want to know what we're supposed to believe and how we're supposed to go about being as healthy as possible. What are you going to tell us in this book? Well, you know, the book's all about how your body burns calories and, you know, starting off from a sort of evolutionary point of view, I'm, I'm a human evolutionary, human evolutionary uh, scientist. I'm interested in how the body evolved, how it got that way, how it, how it works today. And, you know, how it spends calories is, is central to that because from an evolutionary point of view, you know, the name of the game is turning energy into kids. That's what all species are all, all evolved to do. Um, mm-hmm. And so the book explores all the ways your bodies burn energy. And, you know, what I think the big takeaway is it's not all exercise. Exercise is a big piece of it. And that's, that's the part that anybody, everybody always talks about, but your body's up to so many other things that, you know, trying to push your metabolism around by changing your exercise routine is actually really tough to do because, you know, your body can adjust everything else. And, and it kind of frustrates that idea that you can use exercise for weight loss. Uh, so I, I started reading your book and you said something really, really upfront, very interesting, but, uh, but I'm going to throw it out there. I was very upset about it. Um, the idea is that when I work out really hard, I don't get to have a dessert. Is that true? <laughs> yeah. You cannot <laughs> run to earn your donut. It doesn't work that way. Terrifying. Well, so, you know, we, we do this fun uh, research with a hunting and gathering tribe in Northern Tanzania. So we're out there living with these guys in the Savannah and they have incredibly active lives, as you can imagine, you know, 19,000 steps a day. And it turns out they burn the same number of calories every day as, you know, the rest of us here in the industrialized world with sedentary lives. And so that was the big aha moment that, wait, you can be physically active and you should be. It's good for you, but it doesn't do to your metabolism what you think it does, right? We're sold on this idea that if you're more active, you're going to burn more calories. No, 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 no. Your body adjusts. So you don't ever earn the donut, right? Because you, you still... Uh, that's not part of the gamble. That's not part of the deal. So, so Herman, you answered the question that was on my mind, which is surely you're exaggerating. Surely there's some, there's some benefit, just not as, as much as we think, but you're saying, no, actually you Cade Massey sitting on your duff in Austin, Texas are not, are, are, are not any less active metabolic metabolically than the guys on the Savannah hunters and gatherers. So give us the actual numbers. Is it roughly 2000? Yeah. It turns out that's BS too. That, that's not neither. That also isn't true. So, so okay. nine year old boys burn 2000 calories a day. Right. Uh, okay. All of us gentlemen here are burning about 3000 calories a day. Uh, that's the real number. Well, and uh, women are burning okay. about 2500 calories a day. Uh, we, but if, if that feels like more than you actually eat, then that's because you're bad at keeping track. And so we know this is true that people are incredibly bad <laughs> at keeping track of how many calories you eat every day. But so if you're active, you burn the calories differently. You burn it on exercise rather than other stuff like inflammation. So it's really good for you. But no, the total, the top line number doesn't change. So just, just to be clear. So I just want to make sure. So if I take a 24 hour day and it, by the way, you're going to tell me it's not linear maybe throughout the day, but if I take a 24 hour day and I take 3000 and divide by 
you know, 24. So let's say I'm burning about 125 an hour. Mm -hmm. If I go onto my exercise machine and it says, Eric, you've burned 350 calories. Are you saying to me, I don't have 225 extra calories. So now my consumption to stay neutral is 3225. <laughs> uh, you can, I'll, I'm not going to check your math on you, but it doesn't work that way because of this, your body, most of the 3000 calories you spend every day are spent on things like your brain. So your brain runs a 5k every day. 300 calories a day just for your brain, okay? And that's the equivalent of a 5K. Uh, your liver, your guts, your immune system, your reproductive system, all of it burns calories. And so you're, that 225 that you ran on the treadmill, that's great. But if you do that over the long term, so you, these adjustments don't happen minute to minute. But if you start doing that every day, your body will adjust and it'll say, okay, I've got 225 less calories, fewer calories to, to deal with here. So I'm going to take that out of everything else. And so after you've adjusted that new lifestyle where you're running that, that much a day, no, that's right. Your total number of, of calories per day is going to be the same as when you started. Okay. Did you give us an opening, Herman? Can we trick our bodies? Can we do it like I can do today and it won't adjust and I'll get a free uh, you know, cheesecake or whatever. And then I cannot exercise for a week and then it'll think I'm not exercising. Then I do it again and I get, yeah. a, I get a chili dog. No, your, 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 your metabolism is smarter than that. So the, the energy balancing seems to happen over sort of a, a week-long time frame rather okay. than day-to-day. -day. Yeah, so if you run a marathon yeah. tomorrow, you will burn more energy tomorrow than you did today. I, no, it, there's no magic here, right? But your body is, first of all, your brain is incredibly good at sensing how many calories come in and how many calories get burned off and matching those two precisely, right? And oh, so geez. it's sort of keeping track. It's, it's, uh, it's the accountant in the background. And okay. it's, it's always balancing the books. Okay. Can, can I just add a really important um, uh, question here? You said 3,000. I like that. But what's the individual standard deviation? So there's got to be people with faster and people with slower. Mm -hmm. So what is the natural? And without, you know, obviously metabolic syndromes of some kind, but yeah, what's sure. the natural kind of variation, 10% to 90%? Yeah. So, you know, first of all, the biggest factor is how big you are. So the, the number, the amount of lean tissue that you're carrying around because organs and muscle burn more calories and fat. But so basically it's how big you are has a, is, is a big factor, but let's say that you and I are the same weight, same age, same lifestyle, all that stuff. We might still be different in our energy expenditure by 500 calories a day. You might easily burn 250 more. I might burn 250 less than average. That would not surprise anybody who actually studies this stuff. So the, the, there's a fair amount of variation there in terms of you know, fast versus slow metabolism. And those, those seem to be stable over time. We measure somebody who's slow today, they'll be slow in 10 years too. So that's, a, that's more genetically determined. And people are talking about ways of like moving your metabolism around. This is something you're fundamentally opposed to. It sounds like you just can't do a lot about moving your metabolism around. Well, you know, I came from this, there, there, there's no, uh, you know, there, there's no, uh, prude worse than a reformed heretic. Is that, is that how it works? I don't know. There's something like that. You know, I, I came at this thinking that you could move your metabolism around the same way as everybody else did. We did the, the hunter gatherer stuff, the hunter gatherer work, cause we were sure they're going to have high metabolisms. Um, and that, you know, then you sort of have this awakening, right? You're like, Oh my God, your body's way more interesting than that. It's actually way more dynamic than that. So yeah, not a lot of wiggle room as far as we can tell. And even if you could, okay, by, by the way, way we could budget hundred calories a day or something like that. You'll eat it up. You'll eat because you'll, you'll you're again, your brain's very good at matching intake and expenditure. So, Herman, I just want to say that we're all about like running the study, going to the data. And mm -hmm. we, there may never be a better example than you've just given of go to the data because you've just written a book about this astounding empirical observation yeah. that hunter gatherers uh, run the same uh, metabolism as us. And um, 
And yet you went there with the opposite hypothesis. I absolutely love that. There's a general theme here on Wharton Money Bubble about go to the data, baby. You've got to be evidence-based and, and you're going to be surprised. And even really smart, studied people are surprised. And that's why you do go to the data. Eric. Just, just quickly, are all calories created equal or like is 3,000, 3,000, no matter what I consume? And if the answer is no, then are there certain types of foods or certain types of calories that maybe could possibly enhance your metabolism? So, okay. So the asking, are all calories the same? That's asking to somebody who studies metabolism, that's like asking what's heavier, a pound of feathers or a pound of rocks, right? <laughs> so a calorie is a calorie. It just is. Now, would you rather get hit in the face with feathers or with rocks, right? So, you know, is all food, does it all affect your body the same way? No, but the calories in them are fundamentally the same amount of energy. Um, what gets you into trouble are these ultra processed foods that your brain has no way of, of, of ever being able to anticipate. It's never evolved to deal with Domino's pizza and Hot Pockets and Pringles chips and whoever all your other sponsors are. I'm sorry that I'm, I'm bad mathing that, but you know, the, uh, it just isn't, it, your brain isn't built to, to handle these processed foods. And that's what seems to get us into big trouble. And when you say that our brain's not built to handle them, that's because somehow the hormonal signals that our brain feeds off of like are, are, are not there for those ultra processed foods. It's like we, we consume them and we don't f get the right signal about feeling full. It's almost, yeah, it's, uh, it's almost like it's too much, right? So you, your, your brain, you come into this world with reward sig signals and reward systems for salt and fat and carbs. And usually, you know, in a normal wild diet, if you go and, and live with a hunter gatherers for a while, it's a pretty tame, you know, uh, taste palette there. You're not, you know, you get sort of burned antelope and, uh, and raw tubers and that's kind of it. Right. So, or roasted actually, but anyway, it's not, a, you know, a delight on the palate. And so the problem that you get in the U S is you get the, you get the dessert stomach syndrome, right? You ate an entire menu, entire meal of steak and you're totally full. You couldn't eat another bite. And they bring the dessert cart around. You go, Oh yeah, actually I could eat another bite right <laughs> and, it, and it's that mix that crazy mix of stuff you can get that you just your brain's not ready for that and actually my, my original question when you say that our body is finally tuned to balance intake mm -hmm. and expenditure mm -hmm. so i assume storage is just kind of in the expenditure part of that equation because people do gain weight oh but so he so right? here's the, so do the math on this one this is really fun you burn about three thousand calories a day 3500 calories a day would be a would 3500 calories would be a pound okay so 3,000 calories a day is your total energy burn. If you gain a pound in a year, then you're only off by one 365th, right, in terms of matching intake and expenditure over that year. If you're off by two pounds, okay, it's 200, two 365ths. It's a fraction mm. of a percentage. And you do that without even bothering and with this bombardment of ultra-processed crazy foods. And so even in this ridiculous world we live in, your brain is doing an incredibly good job, actually. It's just that you're getting pushed a micro fraction, the wrong direction. And you go from being a normal weight, a healthy weight, 20 year old to being an overweight 40 year old, two pounds a year, right? That's the, that's the American obesity crisis. Can I ask you a, a follow-up on that? So my, my father was a scientist and uh, he was very interested in losing weight because he did lose a lot of weight. And he used to talk about the theories that were popular in the eighties. Hmm. So one of them was the set point theory. 
Yeah. Idea means that no matter how much you, your body just forces you to be, is that believed today? We'll scroll back now 35 years. What, what do we know? Yeah, yeah. And in fact, what I'm talking about with, with uh, energy expenditure as a, as a kind of a set point is I put that in the same realm of theory, that your body really has a sort of homeostatic set point. It likes to be a certain size. It likes to have a certain energy expenditure. And perturbing that, man, is awfully hard because your body wants to get back. Yeah. So I'm going to ask you a very strange question, but it's something that in many sciences, you keep saying our brain knows. In many mm. sciences, they intentionally use stroke victims, people that have had mental issues, mm. uh, issues in their brain to study the actual processes. If I, if, if I had someone that had had a stroke or had some brain injury, would yeah. their body not be able to regulate their calories in the same way? In other words, I don't want to call it a natural experiment because nobody wants somebody with a no. brain injury. But if you studied people like that, would they have a totally different process? That is an intriguing idea. I'll say this, that the systems involved, the seat of them is in uh, it's distributed like a lot of brain systems are, but the seat seems to be in the hypothalamus and the brainstem. The problem with thinking about a, a, st a stroke victim with uh, you know, a problem in the hypothalamus or the brainstem is that person is going to have a really serious list of, of poor function, uh, right? I mean, those are like, that, that's, that's right. the mechanics, right? That, that's, that's the wheelhouse. You need all that stuff to work just to be alive and functioning. So in principle, yes. In practice, gosh, that's hard. But oh, you know what's actually interesting, though? So bariatric surgery, right? We used to think that bariatric surgery helped you get thin by changing your plumbing, right? Yep. That you, you take part of the stomach out, take part of the intestine out, you just can't absorb as much food. Turns out that is not the cause. That's not the mechanism. The mechanism is that it changes the way that your stomach talks to your brain. Um, and we know that for a whole series of, of interesting studies that are I uh, don't have time to get into. But the so there you go. That's your example, right? And it's not a brain stroke, but it, you're actually still messing with those same signaling pathways, or at least a, a subset of them. Can I, can I inject myself with something that would change the way my stomach talks to my brain? So my brain... You can inject yourself with semaglutide, which is this new drug that actually gets into the hunger and, and satiety uh, signaling that you do and just came out two weeks ago. It's this drug often used, I think it was begin, began to be used for diabetes, but actually uh, has this huge weight loss effect and it doesn't affect, you know, it doesn't, it's not active in your fat. It's not active in your stomach. It's not, it's active in your brain basically. Uh, and it wow. tells you that you're full. And so mm -hmm. this is exactly what we're talking about that. If you can be, you know, that that's the chemical way to fix the ultra processed food problem is, and I don't know if it's the best way, but it's mm -hmm. a way and it, and it uh, totally knocks out, you know, a piece of, the, a piece of that signaling system. So Herman, the, you're talking about tricking the brain. Are there many examples of just, developing our eating habits, developing better mental habits? Because I'm wondering if this yeah. story is ultimately hopeful or, or, um, or hurtful. In some sense. Yeah, because you're saying, look, your body's kind of set and you can't trick it and you can't out-exercise yeah. it. So don't push on that frontier. Now, that leaves another obvious frontier. It's like it's all about mental in some sense. Or, or, so do you end up being optimistic about what this leaves people to to move yeah, I, I think uh, it's a mix for me. It's a mix of, of realism and optimism. So the realism is the fad diet stuff, the smoke and mirrors, the vilifying particular food, you know, all that stuff that the quick fixes. Sorry, I don't, I don't believe in them. I don't think they work. I don't think they work for most people. But if you understand the principles about how your body burns calories, okay, you need to exercise, but that's not going to fix it in terms of weight. You need to fit, focus on diet. Well, what about diet? Well, it really is about calories and we can dress that up however we want. We can say, cut your calories by cutting out carbs. 
That works for a lot of people. We can say cut your calories by only eating plant foods. That works for a lot of people, right? But it's all the same game. You're just you're just finding different games to play in, in your mind or mm-hmm. in your house, in your refrigerator about how to cut those calories. And so the trick is, can you find a, a diet that fills you up on fewer calories? And And we know what that probably looks like. That probably looks like a higher protein diet or a higher fiber diet. And those are the principles and then just go at it. And I, I, I think that part's hopeful. Um, mm-hmm. I hope it is. Give us, uh, give us something positive on exercise because I'm sure you are pro exercise. But yeah. So far, we've just talked about how exercise is not helpful on the on the weight management. Yeah, yeah. So that's one of the most exciting parts about this whole research area. Uh, it turns out that instead of adding to how many calories you burn every day, exercise is taking away energy from other stuff. Well, what's it taking energy away from? Well, it's taking energy away from spending, you know, inflammation and stress reactivity. So cortisol levels go down, uh, adrenaline levels go down in people who exercise. You don't react as much to a stressful response if you are a a regular exerciser. Uh, Hormone levels, I go and work with a hunting and gathering group in in Northern Tanzania. Those folks, we've measured it. Their testosterone levels, for example, in the men are, you know, a 30 or 50% lower than in the US. Well, we know that exercise helps protect against reproductive cancers and probably that kind of adjustment that you get from from energy going to activity rather than an overactive reproductive system. That's probably part of the thing. So, so many good things about exercise and that metabolic reshuffling is probably a big piece of that puzzle. So if you're not losing weight, that's probably a good sign that it's doing all these other good things for you. You didn't care on the on the weight on the calorie front what where the calories came from at, at least first order. Do you care on the exercise front what kind of exercise like anaerobic, aerobic, weight? You know what? No, I, I'm I'm pretty uh I'm a heretic with that too. I think as long as you get out moving, I I don't think I care what how or or what or where or why. Just move. That does seem a little heretical because I think the, a lot of the current research says you got to get your heart rate up. You don't need to. You don't need an hour of kind of strolling. You can yeah. kind of get away with maybe tw- you know twelve minutes of if if some of that's really high intensity. Um, but that's really more on time management, I think, yeah. rather than rather than on uh, doing it or not doing it. Well, I guess I'd say I care that you're spending the calories doing it, mm-hmm. right? And oh, so you I can see. spend yeah. the calories faster if you go more intensively, but whether that's like a brisk walk with your dog for 45 minutes or it's like a 15 minute jog or however you want to add, get it all added up. I, I don't think it matters a whole lot. So can, mm-hmm. one thing that I, that I very curious about your research potentially illuminating is this idea that, you know, some people look at heavy people and, and I'm, I'm, I'm over 30 in the BMI category, mm-hmm. but I exercise a whole a lot and maybe not as much in the last few months because of the winter and, and COVID, but I usually exercise quite a bit. And so I remember listening to people saying, you really can't look at someone and say whether they're healthy or not just because of their weight because if you exercise a lot that you might be quite healthy even if you're you're overweight mm-hmm. of course other people say wait a minute no 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 being overweight by itself is a problem and that and that you're saying something really quite destructive w- where do you weigh in well i mean i look at the data and the data say that if you are over a certain bmi 30s is usually the cutoff you are just you are at higher risk you know and whether that risk hits you, it's hard to say because it's a probabilistic kind of a thing. Now, if we think about diet and exercise as two different tools for two different jobs, right? Exercise keeps you healthy on a lot of fronts. Mm-hmm. Diet helps your weight. Then somebody like you makes all the sense in the world. You are exercising like crazy. You are doing all the right things to keep yourself healthy. But perhaps if you, you know, if you wanted to, to deal with your, if, if you wanted to lose weight, 
up to you, but you probably have to deal with diet to do that, right? And so we could say that you are managing risk on one level, but perhaps because of, of uh, a BMI classification, you are still epidemiologically, right? If I was an actuary, I would still be dealing yeah, with risk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you're associating people with, with BMIs of over 30 on average, exercise a lot less. And, and, and I know you're saying it's not, but that's just those two often go hand in hand. And what I'm arguing is that if you try to adjust for the amount of exercise, you're looking at, on, I'm, a, I'm a huge outlier in weight given the amount of exercise. I, th- I think, I'm not, I haven't studied the data, but I believe so. so I'm, and so I'm, I'm less worried. I mean, this is, and maybe, yeah. I sh- maybe you're saying I should be worried. Go on a diet, buddy. <laughs> no, no. I, I mean, if, you are, if you're aware of your... Uh, you know, if you know what your blood profiles are, your cholesterol levels, your resting, your sugar levels, uh, you know, your heart rate and your blood pressure, all those are better markers. The BMI is just, it's just, okay. you know, an epidemiology tool to say, okay, I'm, you know, risk is higher, lower, whatever, but you're right. It's that's a wonderful, that's a wonderful, that's a wonderful point that connects again to topics that we talk about on this class, on this, on this, on this podcast where, you know, BMI is a little bit like batting average. Like, okay, it's, it reflects something, but we can do better than that. Let's decompose. Let's get, let's get more fine-grained analyses, and we don't have to settle for that. It's, I mean, everybody go get a blood workup, and you should get a blood workup on a regular basis. Yeah. Eric? I was, I was just going to ask you, Herman, um, since we're a sports show, like the, the prime athletes, like whether it's a pro basketball player or someone really active, how much calories are they consuming in a day to kind of maintain their body mass as they are? Obviously, they're exercising, so they're burning a lot. Yeah. But is it like 6,000 a day? Are they like double us, triple us? How much are we talking about here? You can't do 6,000 a day for a long, long time. You just can't. Uh, now these guys are big. They carry a lot of lean mass, and so they're going to be really high just for that. They might be four thousand calories just for that. Uh, you know, right. if you're like, talking like an offensive lineman or something like that, right? Um, and in the season when they're when they're you know really pushing it, or in training season maybe, which is even a higher workload, yeah, then you're going to see six thousand, seven thousand in these big guys. Um, but you can't do that forever. And in fact, if you try to do that forever, you end up with overtraining syndrome and all kinds of fall apart things. That's why an off season actually is really, really important for these guys so they can cycle. Um, but you know, what, one thing that's interesting is what happens when you retire and you're used to that seasonal fluctuation. That's something we haven't studied that would love to know because you know, if there's a set point and your body's used to the particular lifestyle and all of a sudden whoop, you pull the carpet out from under you, um, I don't think we know what happens on that level yet. I mean, we're talking about really big changes at that level of, of, uh, of workload that we don't really know yet. There are a lot of guys out there you could study. I've seen a lot of um, retired offensive linemen who slim down dramatically. It's just unbelievable. They carry that much more weight than their natural weight um, after their season. All right, Herman, we're going to have to let you go. But before we do, love to hear, give us, give us one, like how a tip that a a guideline for your own life, like how you live your research, you're influenced by your research in some way. Mm. And so just give us one practical tip of how you've adapted to the, research you've done and how you've adopted into your life i try to get outside every day uh i try to get active every day those are the two big things for me and you know Mm -hmm. if you're outside and active that helps your mood that helps everything else that that's for me if i had to pick one thing get outside get active one follow-up on that how much what's the range of time you spend on those daily outings uh, it depends on a day like today, not enough, you know, I probably was only outside an hour or so today, but I, if I can spend my weekends outside the entire time, I'll do it. Um, and, you know, mm. try to 
work outside when I can, when the weather's nice. It's nice being here in Duke. You get a chance to do that more often. Um, mm-hmm. Anyway, mm-hmm. It, not enough is a short answer, but try to do as much as I can. All right. Well, listen, appreciate that tip. Appreciate the research. Appreciate your making time to be with us on the show and come back and visit with us again, Herman, please. Thank you. That was Herman Ponser. Herman is associate professor of evolutionary anthropology at Duke. He's also on faculty at the Duke Global Health Institute. Importantly, brand new book just out this week, maybe last week. It's called Burn. New research blows the lid off how we really burn calories, lose weight, and stay healthy. Some seriously empirically informed research. Always a delight to talk with Herman about what he's going on. All right, guys, we're only good to the second half of this quarter. We have another interview. Delighted to welcome again back to the show, Nick Elam, another professor, influence in the world of sports directly, and one of the few folks out there who's got a stat named after him. I don't even call it a stat. It's a whole, like, way of doing sports. Nick Elam, welcome back to the show. Hey, it's great to be back with you guys. Well, um, th- you just had your, your weekend in the sun. How was it? You got the NBA the NBA game, uh, highest-profile adoption of the elam ending how did it go for you how is the build-up how has the world of the elam ending been evolving over the last year yeah it was really exciting last night you know because i think the elam ending has certain benefits to different types of games whether it's a super close game like we saw at the 2020 nba all-star game or whether it's a more medium-sized margin say four to nine points as the final margin or in a game like last night where uh, it's a lopsided game, a, a 20-point final margin of victory. I think it has certain benefits in that case, too. Uh, we, uh, What we saw last night, actually, the Team LeBron was able to reach that target score in just over six minutes' worth of game time. So we saw less game time than we would normally see for a full-time fourth quarter. But I, I think at that point we had seen what we needed to see to know that Team LeBron was the was having the better night. They were the superior team. And so what the Elam ending allowed us to do was end the game in a more efficient way, we'll say. And uh, it allowed it to still end with a flourish. You know, they were able to – put their foot on the gas and lean into the finish and then with a really cool half court three pointer, um, you know, have that exclamation point rather than making it a more, uh, you know, passive kind of crawl to the finish. So again, you know, last year we saw certain benefits from a really close game. And then last night we saw how it works and, and why it works in a more lopsided game. Nick remind those of us and those listeners we have who may not be familiar with the Elam Indy, what exactly it is that happens. Sure. So the idea in a nutshell is that you play most of the game with a game clock and you play the last part of the game without a game clock. And the idea is not to change basketball. It's to do the opposite. It's to preserve a more natural and exciting style of play through the end of every game. So what happens when you shut off the clock, you know, the, the, it takes away all these different manipulative strategies that we see and phenomena that we see that are attributable to the clock. The Elam endings, its intents are, its aims are to eliminate that deliberate fouling strategy that we see so often by trailing defenses. It's meant to eliminate the passive stalling offense that we see by leading teams late in games. It's meant to uh, get rid of the rushed and sloppy possessions by trailing offenses that we see late in games and allow them to take their best shot on every possession. Uh, And that whole combination of factors makes the outcome of the game less predictable. It makes late comebacks more likely, so it adds some suspense. And every game ends with the swish of a net, so we get more memorable game-ending moments. Nick, remind us, if you're turning off the clock, how is it you decide when the game's over? 
Yeah, so when you say, well, you're going to play the last part of the game without a clock, it begs two questions, which is, well, when do you shut off the clock and what do you play to? Now, there are different versions, and uh, so different leagues and events can kind of customize the Elam ending based on, uh, you know, what they prefer. Uh, I actually prefer, my favorite version is what uh, TBT, the basketball tournament, uses, where they really only get rid of the clock for the last uh, portion of the game, really the final stretch. So what they do is they shut off the clock at the four-minute mark of the fourth quarter, and then they set the target score equal to the leading team score plus eight. So, for example, let's say the score is 65 to 60 when you get to that four-minute mark. Okay, we're going to shut off the clock. We're going to play the rest of the game without a clock. It's still 65 to 60, but it's going to be first team to 73 wins the game. And the whole idea is that if you've got, uh, you know, if, if you're the team that's ahead, you can't just stall and run out the clock. You've got to keep playing assertively to get to that target score. If you're behind, you don't have to foul and hand away free points at the foul line. You can continue to rely on defensive stops. Uh, and also, if you're behind, you don't have to rush and force up these desperate, ugly shots. You can continue to get your best look. And again, that whole combination of factors makes the outcome of the game less predictable. And then uh, somebody's got to put the ball through the net to win the game. Okay, so hold on. Let me ask the fellas a question. Um, guys, he just gave us his favorite version, which is with four minutes left, you take the leading team plus eight to decide the, the, the score that's going to win the game. What's the, how do we generalize that? So um, they've got other examples, and Nick might even be able to tell us how you generalize it. But I want to ask you all, because you're, you're kind of experts at this. If you were going to say, okay, what, what if I want to back it off to eight minutes? How do I know how many points above the leading team score I should use well, if I don't have the amount of time left. I would guess this is a I, – I, by the way, Nick's going to tell, us, tell me what I'm about to say is entirely wrong. But <laughs> my first intuition is that this is a – like you, it's a backward inversion problem. Let's with, with sort of score 65 to 60 with four minutes left. There is a known probability that that team leading is going to win the game. So you set the score to where you match that probability. Now, you could make it more so you give a b- greater advantage to the 65-60 team. You could make it less. So you make it less than the odds. But I would imagine at any given point in time in a game, there is a win probability for the team that's leading. Why not set the score that kind of makes it so that the 65-60 team has like somewhere around that probability? Nick, am I close at all or is that totally out of Or an alternative all right. that doesn't involve win probability is, I mean, you said that they stopped the clock with four minutes to go. Maybe you set the score to get to that on in expectation on average results in about the set. You know, the, you, you're kind of trying to match up the ending so that it's approximately four minutes. You know, long you, that the that the team you know takes four about four minutes from that point for a team to win the game on average, and that's sort of how you calibrate. So it depends on you know. There's this relationship where like depending on when you stop the clock, you know that that then you kind of are aiming the score. To kind of still meet that same st- uh, amount of time in expectation. Okay, good, good, good. good. I'm dying to get in, and then I want to jump in as well. Nick, thank you for letting us use you for our own entertainment here. Adi, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I think it's the, the, the problem is probably very, very easily approximately solved by using the two bit, most important facts of statistics, which is the normal curve and the square root law. If you know how many approximately how many possessions you would have in an, or, in an ordinary game with four minutes to go, you can pretty much pretty much accurately figure out. Um, what the distribution on the total number of points of the leading team going on using the normal curve it should work really. It's a binomial, right? So um, it should work out very nicely. 
I just want to point out that they're not considering the difference between the leading team and the, the team behind. It's just the number of points ahead of the leading team. And so well, that's it. It's, it's the difference. It's, it's the gap that matters at that point, right? No, well, you're kind of averaging over that. that. The rule does not take that into account. That's right. So Shane said, you're, you're, you're just, this is why right. my, mine is the only one that does not take into account the different, my proposal is the only one that does not take into account the difference between the leading team and the trailing team, right? It's just exactly. about sort of like if, if the teams continue to play at their current scoring pace, what would kind of result in a game in expectation that would be about four minutes, you know, whatever okay. extra. Okay, so you're not, you're not trying to do the, you're the probability. You're just yeah, trying to say what would happen instead. Well, you could, well, you're going to have just a rougher approximation because you're not considering the gap. Okay, we have indulged that enough. Nick, tell us, is there a general rule or are there just other, just a multiple set of other, other ways to do it? Yeah, so uh, when I first laid this out in 2007, I did consider, you know, should we consider both teams' scoring rate when determining, uh, you know, what how to set the target score? Now, over time, uh, over a few years, I, I finally got to the point where I was like, you know what, this is just, people aren't going to, embrace this because it's going to seem too um just too complex they're not going to know like where that number comes from that so i started to think well a fixed number is going to work better just have a little more appeal uh and just adding that to the leading team score uh now i'd say of, of all the different you know i brainstorming and ideas i've heard shane aligns the most with what i think is you know if we're cutting out four minutes worth of game time What's the number that's going to give us about four minutes worth of game time back in? Uh, because when we started this in TBT, we started with a plus seven model. And what we found is over a you know, large sample of games is that we were only getting, getting closer to about three minutes worth of game time during that untimed final stretch. So we thought, oh, you know, we need to adjust this a little bit. We bumped it up to plus eight. And now it's very close to about four minutes worth of game time. And it's good basketball. You know, it's four minutes of good basketball rather than a very choppy and, and a warped style of play. Um, you know, what Eric said about the win probability is that, um, you know, if you're trying to match the win probability, I, my problem with that is that I do not like the current win probability for teams uh, trailing late in the game. I think it's way too low because I think the clock work, works against them so much. So I don't want to give them the same win probability. I'd like to give them a little bit more of a chance well, to win, but doing it in a little more of a, an authentic way. Yeah, I did say a sentence where saying you could adjust it up or down, but uh, oh, e- either way, yeah, Adi was, uh, Adi was there. Okay, so I have, I have two comments or questions, really. One is, uh, in, as a baseball fan who likes to preserve things, you, you know where I'm coming from, um, are there basketball <laughs> fans who, who, would, who would complain that this is, this is part of basketball and you're changing it and you shouldn't change it? I, 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 maybe, maybe there is. And then my second question would be, w- would there be like an extreme Elam game where you just played to 100? Just, that's that, and, and has that been thought of? So uh, as far as when people defend kind of the, the fouling strategy to say that it's yeah. part of the game, that it's a tradition, for me, I just kind of let them talk. And by the, <laughs> end of the time, by the end of the time they finish their first or second sentence, you can see like this look in their eye that they don't even believe what they're saying. So, um, <laughs> so they kind of run out of their own steam there. And, but again, it goes back to, you know, I, in a way I consider myself a, a purist, but that's again, the whole spirit of the idea is that I think the game changes. I think the game of basketball changes too much under the regular format during the final stretch. And I just want to see a more, uh, you know, natural style of play all the way through the end. And that's why it's been really heartening for me to see that some of the biggest proponents of the Elam ending idea are people who do consider themselves basketball traditionalists or basketball lifers, you know, people who have been in the game 
for a long time. So, and then I, I forget what was the very last part of your. Uh, uh, what question. if you just What if you just played the game to oh. a fixed score? Yeah. So, and that's how many of us uh, learn to play basketball. So that's certainly been done before. I think the problem with that at, at really high levels, like the NBA or college basketball, is that the the length of the game would vary too much to be TV friendly. So, you know, the clock does have a benefit of it. Kind of helps predict, uh, you know, how long the game's going to last. So my thought is, let's keep the clock around for as long as it gives us that benefit, but let's ditch the clock before it starts to have a detrimental effect. So, Nick, we're going to lose you, I know, here at the top of the hour. So I just want to check in. Uh, where Where is this thing going? And it's such a great idea. And I love that it has the profile of the All-Star game. Do you, What are the possibilities that it gets adopted a little bit more broadly? What have you seen over the last year since the first time it, it hit the All-Star game? And what do you think its potential is? Yeah, it's, it's exciting to think about possibilities. Um, I mean, again, I've I would have voted for this uh, widespread implementation in 2007. So, uh, you know, I've learned to be patient with this and to let it just grow and let's see where it goes next. And, um, you know, it's it's really exciting that since its implementation at the 2020 All-Star Game, uh, FIBA League did implement it. This is the Canadian Elite Basketball League uh, in 2020. That's really exciting. You know, this is the international uh, governing body of basketball. And so now that it has that foot in the door in the international scene, I, I really think it can help grow worldwide. Uh, you know, it's hard to say because I don't run a league or an event. So it, it, in some ways, I'm, you know, I, I can only propose these ideas and then hope somebody uh, runs with them. But I do think there are a lot of great settings to implement it, even if a league isn't ready to go all in with it. You know, say with the NBA, they could do the G League, the Summer League, their preseason. They could do overtime only. They could do this in-season tournament that they've proposed. Um, There's a lot of different kind of events in the college level, AAU or high school. I mean, so I think it's going to just continue to grow. It's just exciting to see who's going to be next and what's the sequence of growth. But I, I do think it's going to continue moving forward. Wonderful. Well, listen, uh, congrats on it gaining the profile that it has, and we love it. We think it's super clever. Game design is, a, is something we love visiting on this show, and so we appreciate your taking the time to discuss it with us. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. That was Nick Elam. Nick is educational leadership professor at Ball State University and creator of the Elam ending, which at its highest profile so far has been adapted by the NBA for their All-Star Weekend. That has been another Wharton Moneyball, another two hours of sports analytics. We do it every week here on SiriusXM for the whole crew. And they were here today for the whole interview segment, which was a delight. Eric Bradlow, Audie Weiner, Shane Jensen. This has been Cade Massey. Matty Datz is the boss man, of course. Deion Simpkins is the associate boss man. Can't anything happen around here without these two guys. Very much appreciated. Thank you guys for listening. We will be back next time. Hope you'll join us between now and then. Enjoy your sports.